Habakkuk chapter 2. As we saw last Sunday, the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue in which Habakkuk complains, he questions God. There are actually two complaints. The first complaint is found in the first four verses of the book. It involves the society in which Habakkuk found himself. Now, the three parts or three categories to his first complaint. Um, the society is marked by violence, destruction, strife, conflict. Secondly, it is marked by injustice. He says the law is paralyzed, justice never prevails, justice is perverted. And lastly, and I think this is the crux of the complaint, that God seems to tolerate wrong. Why do you tolerate wrong? Habakkuk wants to know. In other words, it seems that God has forgotten that his land is where his glory dwells. Mercy and truth were to be found there, not violence and injustice. Had God, in fact, lost his power to establish law and order in his land, wasn't it supposed to be the holy land and weren't his people supposed to be holy people? Why had God not answered the prayer of the prophets? And why is it that the righteous are suffering while the wicked don't seem to suffer, they seem to flourish? In a word, why? So God answers him in verses 5 through 11. And in verse 5, God tells Habakkuk he is going to do something against Judah publicly, amazingly, and speedily. And God is going to do this. And what is he going to do? I am raising up the Babylonians. This is really problematic because the Babylonians are wicked pagan people marked by two basic sins, autonomy, this, this law to themselves, as well as cruelty. They are a feared and dreaded people, a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. They deride kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. They sweep past like the wind. They are guilty men whose own strength is their God. And in doing these things, they are marked by cruelty. They are ruthless and impetuous people. They seize dwellings not their own. They are all bent on violence. It may well be, and I suspect that it's true, that Habakkuk knew this about the Babylonians. He knew their reputation. <clears throat> this wasn't news to him. What he probably didn't know is that God was raising them up. And it's implied but not stated that he is raising them up to judge his people. This leads to the second complaint or the second question from Habakkuk that arises out of what God said to him in answer to the first. And at this point, last week, we looked at two rules, two basic rules in questioning God. First of all, we need to recognize that God's character is unchanging. And secondly, we need to recognize that God's character must be used as a reference point or reference points as we seek to understand what he is doing. This is what we hear in chapter 1, verses 12, and the first part of verse 13. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Before we continue today, picking up where we left off last week, 
I think it's important to establish Habakkuk's attitude, especially in light of the two statements, we will not die, in verse number 12, and then the first verse of chapter 2, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. One could take this as rather presumptuous on Habakkuk's parts, like, I'm going to stand here, I can take this. I think we have two choices as to Habakkuk's attitude. Either he is arrogant, he is prideful, he is unbowing before God, or he is humble. He is bowed before God, he's looking to God for the answer. I would argue that Habakkuk was humble. And why do I say that? Well, first of all, he looked to God for the answer. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that he was humble, because even in this, as we saw last week, we may insist that we have a right to know what God is doing. We may think that we can understand the answer, that we can take the force of the answer. We may insist that we have a right to know, that we need to know in order to believe that God is doing what is right. In other words, we approach God as though we are his equal. We don't find this with Habakkuk. Secondly, God answered him not once, but twice. Both James and Peter, uh, in 2 Peter and in the book of James, they quote Proverbs 3.34. I'll read from James 4.6. But he gives us more grace... That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I would suggest to you that if, in fact, Habakkuk was proud, God would not have spoken to him again. It is because of his humility that God, in fact, answers him in grace. Thirdly, and we'll get to this later in uh, chapter 3, Habakkuk praised God for who he was. That means to me, at least, that Habakkuk really wanted to know the answer, God's answer. He didn't want a good answer, if you wish, like on a quiz show. He wanted to know God's answer, why God was allowing this to happen. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Whose will will be done, God's or yours? Habakkuk was one who said to God, thy will be done. So I mentioned at the end of the sermon last Sunday, we hear these words from Habakkuk at the end of the book. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. How did Habakkuk get from complaining or questioning God to praising him at the end of this book. I think it begins with a humble attitude. And in our study, we will journey with Habakkuk. 
we will seek to learn how he reached that destination of praising God. The second complaint, chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying the net, destroying nations without mercy? We saw last week the reference points within which Habakkuk frames his complaint. We didn't look at one statement, though, in verse number 12. We will not die. Is this a statement or is this a question? Yes, it's actually a combination of the two. Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom, which was made up of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom, Israel, which consisted of the other ten tribes, is gone. Assyria came in and destroyed them. The tribes were scattered, and they are still referred to by some as the ten lost tribes of Israel. It was unthinkable, and yet it happened. What was going to happen to the two remaining tribes? What was going to happen to Judah? There were promises that went back as far as Jacob in Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, uh, he says, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. And then about Judah, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Until Shiloh comes, in one translation, until he comes to whom tribute belongs. This hasn't happened yet. The Messiah has not yet, ha- has not yet come. And if Judah is going to be destroyed, then that promise and others would be destroyed as well. What we hear from Habakkuk is described by Martin Luther this way. The prophet here describes a state of faith in times of trial and temptation. Then faith seems so weak as if it no longer believed, but were about to sink, and doubt because of the great weight oppressing it. For, through faith, for though faith remains firm, it cracks under the severe strain of affliction and temptation, and while in the midst of battle, uses language far different from that employed after it has gained the victory. We will be considering today and in the weeks to come at some length the matter of faith. But I want to point out at this, at this juncture that faith is organic. It's not inorganic. It's not made of steel. Faith is organic. It grows. It stretches. It bends. It can crack, but heal. It moves ahead. In contrast, that which is inorganic does not grow or bend or heal. Instead, it breaks. In faith, Habakkuk asks, 
Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And what follows, Habakkuk, he paints a picture that uses symbols not only for the weapons of war, hooks, net, dragnet. A dragnet is a net that's put across a river or a lake and then sort of dragged and taking everything in its path. It's also a reference to Babylonian gods or their deities, such as Marduk, who is pictured as holding or dragging a net in which he captured his enemies and his enemies are seen as squirming. Thus we have the reference in verse number 16 to worship. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. We heard earlier in verse number 11, whose own strength is their God. They are a pagan and lawless people. Is there no stopping the Babylonians? Verse 17, is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Habakkuk wants to know. And at the end of the second complaint, the second question, we read verse number one of chapter two, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. God's answers, in fact, or his answer, raise new questions, new doubts, new fears. But Habakkuk did not turn away in unbelief. Even though the answer seemed to him to be incomprehensible, and frankly, in conflict with God's revelation of himself, Habakkuk had heard the answer. God had condescended to speak to him, a creature, a fallen creature. God had spoken to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch. He will not insist. He does not insist on an immediate answer. He will wait until God gives him an answer. He doesn't insist on a particular manner. God must answer me in this way. He will watch for it. He will wait and watch. The bottom line is only God can give the answer. Habakkuk can't. That's why he asks God. And he waits. I think we need to understand that Habakkuk didn't ask these questions out of idle curiosity. Nor was it an attempt to somehow pry into the secret things of God. He asks in faith. As fragile and as frail as it might have been at that point, he asks in faith. And God answers him, verse number 2 of chapter 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Begins with a threefold command. Write down the revelation, what I'm about to tell you. Number two, make it plain. And then thirdly, make it so that a runner can read it. That is, it's big enough, it's like a billboard. Even though you're running, you can still read the words and see what the revelation is. Verse number three, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. What does this mean? I think you could argue that verse number two spoke about the plainness of the physical writing. The meaning of the revelation may not be as clear as the writing itself was. There is clarity here. The revelation will come in time, the appointed time. The revelation will be true. It will not prove false. 
It may linger, wait for it. But there's also something that is not so clear. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. If you have the NIV, it has a footnote. Though he linger, wait for him, he will certainly come and not delay. And this verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 37. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. The passage in Hebrew refers to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And so we may take the passage in Habakkuk to refer to the first coming, the incarnation, God in the flesh. What I find fascinating is what follows. And part of it is quoted in Hebrews 10. See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. What is faith? I think this is the third most important question we can ask. The first most important question is, who is God? What is his nature? What is his relationship to the universe? What is his relationship to humanity? The second most important is, what is humanity? What is a human being? Where did humanity come from? What is our purpose? What is our relationship to the universe? But most importantly, what is our relationship to God? And then this leads to the third most important question, what is faith? And I would suggest to you that the means of relationship between God and humanity, between humanity and God, is in fact faith, which God has ordained. There is another choice, by the way. Our relationship to God can be based on rebellion. That whatever he says, we don't want to listen, we don't want to do, we will do what we want. But faith is God's choice. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. How else could Adam and Eve understand or accept, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. But what does it mean to die? You have to trust that God knows what he's talking about. What does it feel like to die? Will I really die? Thus, the serpent's temptation involved undermining their faith. Did God really say that? No, 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 you won't, re- you won't die. Satan questioned God's word. Then his character. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Because of their sin, humanity has been plunged into darkness. We are a fallen race. And yet faith remains the key to a right relationship to God. And one of the keys to faith is humility. This was true before Adam and Eve sinned. It remains true. And I think this verse is critical to our understanding this. By the way, the statement that just will live by faith is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. Uh, I mentioned one earlier from Hebrews 10, but I think Paul's quoting of this in Romans 1, 117, is perhaps the most familiar. But that's the, that's the third line in the verse. Let's not skip the first two. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. You see, pride is incompatible with true faith. Humility is the key, and I think we see this in Habakkuk. 
So let's try to answer the question, what is faith? Let me suggest a brief answer. Faith is perceiving and believing the truth and living as though it were the truth. But then one might counter by saying, well, what is truth? What is the truth? And this is crucial. This is critical. Because I would argue that truth is not a theological system or a creed and not even scripture, though scripture reveals truth to us. The answer to the question, what is truth, is God. The existence of God and who he is, this is truth. Therefore, truth is that which is in relationship to the God that exists. Faith, we believe, we perceive, and we act on the truth that God exists. I think it's possible, in fact, I've known a number of individuals, who know theology, who know creeds, who know scripture, but do not know the truth. You see, theologies, creeds, scriptures are lenses through which we see the truth. That God is there, who he is, his nature, the reality of God who created us and who desires to be in relationship with us. It is through scripture, it is through the creeds that we come to know who God is and how he desires to be in relationship with us. Faith is perceiving that, believing that, and acting, living as though it were the truth. One might well ask, how do I have faith? What part of me is involved? There's a story in the Gospels of a lawyer, an expert in the law, who said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. By the way, it's a statement. God is there. This is who he is. And then the commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. How are we to love God? How are we to do anything that God commands? How are we to have faith? With all our heart, soul, mind and strength. The heart is the source of our thoughts, our words and our actions. The soul is the seat of our emotions. The mind is our intellect, also our disposition and attitudes. And finally, strength is where all of these meet the external world, where we act on the truth. I don't think there's any particular significance to the order in which they're given, but we'll take them in that order. First of all, the heart the source of a person's thoughts, words, and actions, that is, a person's will. Having faith, based on the heart, is at least twofold in this regard. First of all, humbling oneself before God, to choose to humble oneself before God, and secondly, choosing to be willing to obey his commands. This is the heart. The soul, the seat of the emotions, It's our feelings, it's a subjective part of us. The key word here for faith is trust. Having faith on this level means trusting God. And from this trust comes confidence, assurance, and peace. Then there is the mind, the intellect. Having faith on this level, I think, is at least twofold. The first is knowledge, the receiving of information, 
primarily from Scripture, and accepting it as truth. But then the second part of this is believing. Reason, you know, making sense of it, and then understanding the truth. So knowledge leads to belief, and reason leads to understanding. It is reason that organizes, that analyzes, that systematizes the things that we are taught in Scripture. And it is here, interestingly enough, where most people see the conflict with faith. So there's a false choice that is put between us. You either believe or you know. Paul saw no such conflict. He wrote to Timothy, I know whom I have believed. Then the fourth is strength, where it meets the external world. And here, having faith means acting on what is known to be true, no matter the cost, no matter what. Now, several things I want to point out. First of all, there are times when not all four parts are working together at the same time, at the same level. The emotions may flare up, either fear or despair, but the mind holds firm. Or there may be times when the mind stumbles, when reason stumbles, but the heart is calm. Secondly, in the midst of any struggle, we are still to act. The strength is still to be a part of our faith. There are no timeouts in life. We are continued to live as though the truth is in fact true. Thirdly, growth or maturity is to happen in each of these areas. That is, my humility, I think, should grow. My willingness to be obedient should grow. Just as a child learns as they get older to be more obedient to their parents, uh, we should as well. And trust. I think our trust can deepen as time goes on. But the fourth thing, and connected to this, is that pseudo-faith or false faith can creep in when one of the four areas takes over. So to use an illustration, if you can imagine faith as an organic ladder, which to us almost sounds like an oxymoron because ladders are made of wood or metal, but imagine that it's organic. It has four rungs, the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength. Not everyone is the same dimension because they're supposed to be growing, and some may grow at a faster rate than others. What we find oftentimes is that people... Well, let me stop a moment. I think that faith is a gift from God, and that God gifts us all differently. So for the purpose of the church, God may in fact give someone a strong intellect so that he or she can in fact delve into the truth of Scripture as it reveals God and share it with the congregation with the body. Others may have a gift of trust that God has given them more than others, just this deep trust where they trust God. But I have found oftentimes that when people have a special gift in faith, there is a temptation to say, this is faith, that they sort of camp out on that rung, they paint it, they decorate it, and this is what the Christian faith is all about. And then they may, in fact, mock others who do not share their emphasis on one particular aspect of faith. 
I think this is false faith. True faith climbs. That's what a ladder's for, right? That we are to climb from rung to rung and keep going up. Faith is a ladder that allows us to know God better. What does it all mean? If we are God's people, we are to live by faith. Faith is perceiving and believing the truth and acting as though it were the truth with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. The just will live by faith. Well, what about the unjust? What about the Babylonians? Lord willing, next Sunday we will look at the unjust shall live by, and we will fill in the blank. I mentioned earlier a portion of a verse, Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.12. But let me read the whole verse now. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. You will notice that every aspect of faith that we've talked about is found there the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength. So Paul can say with conviction, with trust, I'm not ashamed, and I know whom I have believed. I mentioned this earlier, I mentioned it last Sunday, that at the end of the book, a book that opens with two complaints from the prophet Habakkuk, we have these wonderful verses in which he proclaims his faith. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. How does Habakkuk reach that point? Well, we're going to take the journey with him. It begins with humility. And the first step is faith. It may be a weak faith. It may may be a faltering faith. But we should stay with him, say with him, I will stand on my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. God's answer is faith. The just will live by faith. Believe me, trust me, understand me, humble yourself, and then act. Let's pray together. Our Father, we cannot blame our culture the time in which we live. We are sinners by nature. We do not want to be humble. We tend to be suspicious, not sure that we want to trust you. And our minds are marred by sin. Somehow we think we can understand it on our own, that we don't need any help from you. And then we go out and act as we choose. As we begin this journey with Habakkuk, 
going from a point of living in a lawless society, asking God why he doesn't do something about it, and then not understanding God's answer. May we, like Habakkuk, be humble and wait for your answer. And may we, by your grace, it is a gift, take steps in faith. Humbling ourselves, trusting you, believing in you, and then by your grace, acting according to the truth. We thank you that you are the truth. And the words of Jesus take on a deeper resonance. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You are there. You made us. We find our rest in you by faith. We thank you for another Sunday, the beginning of another week. By your grace, you have kept us safe and healthy. You have sustained us. May we, in faith, trust you. We thank you for your love. We ask by your spirit that we would have peace. May we, following the example of Pastor Rinker, be grateful for all you have done for us. May your spirit and your grace be with us in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.